there are three zones we live in, the comfort zone, the learning zone, and the panic zone. And a lot of times we go from comfort to panic without ever going into learning. And nothing can get done in the panic zone. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders. Rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Campbell, and welcome to Superhumans at Work. We have a guest today, Heather McGowan, who's a future of work strategist. She speaks on the topic and really helps organizations and educational institutions on how they can adapt to what we are referring to here as the fourth industrial revolution. She has just written a book, which is called The Adaptation Advantage, How to Let Go, Learn Fast, and Thrive in the Future of Work. A lot of change is happening in the workplace, and what we want to do in this episode is really get you to understand what are the things you need to learn and even more specifically what are the things you need to unlearn as these changes are coming fast and we're going to see how you can adapt to these changes and really thrive as they are happening heather thank you so much for being here thank you so much for having me it's my pleasure to be with you today Heather, I'd love to start with a bit of history on your side which is how did you find yourself taking the stages and writing this book which is all about the future of work well, I went on LinkedIn and I found an ad for a future work strategist. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think the best jobs in the future, in fact, the best jobs I've had in my life have been ones I've made. So in my life, I've had many jobs. I think my last count, it was something like 28 of them. And only one of them was an actual job before I came into the situation. So I found most of my work by talking to people, more importantly, listening to people and understanding what they were facing and then figuring out how I could create value around that. And that's sort of how the future work strategist stuff emerged. I did about a decade across three different higher ed institutions. At the same time, I was advising corporate clients. My background's in product design, design strategy, design thinking. I have an MBA in entrepreneurship and finance. So between the two, it was how do you find and frame new problems? How do you create new value? How do you scale that new value for value creation and capture? So I found in that process over the, about that decade period, which was about... 2005 to about 2015, that higher ed institutions were struggling to try to turn out workers that were relevant to the world that was emerging in front of them really quickly. And corporations were having a difficult time finding, screening, nurturing, organizing talent. So I started explaining the world as I saw it. We saw the only people out there really explaining the future of work at the time were people who were saying that the Robots were coming to take all of our jobs and enslave us. And I just didn't see it that way. I'm an optimistic and a learning-centric future of work. And so through those explanations, I started getting requests to speak. I wrote an article called Jobs Are Over, the Future is Income and Generation. I try to push people to think about the value they create every day. And it was a four-part series. The second part, 100,000 people read it in two days. And I started getting speaking requests all over the world. My first one was in Australia. And from there, I just finished 2019 with 44 engagements. I had about 40-something the year before. Now all I do is fly around speaking about the future of work. And I just spent the last six months between airports and hotel rooms writing this book called The Adaptation Advantage with my co-author, Chris Shipley. 
That's brilliant. Heather, this is so cool because you're really labeling this around this whole fourth industrial revolution. And the fact that you're all over the place seems that, you know, all the companies are really feeling that they're unprepared for this change. And, you know, I'm hearing examples when I hear people saying like the amount of change we're going to see in the next two years is going to be equal to X amount of years before and everything is exponential. So where do we get started? Like what's this fourth industrial revolution? How does it affect us? Well, I think it's sometimes helpful. It's hard to imagine. There's a psychologist who did a TED Talk. His first name is Dan, and I'm drawing a blank on his last name. He did a TED Talk who talked about how it is really difficult for us to imagine, but easy for us to remember. So using that frame, I would say, okay, here we are in 2019, almost 2020. I presume this will probably air in 2020. And we are closing out a decade that's had tremendous change. But if you really just think about it across one dimension, Before you had a smartphone in your pocket, which, by the way, has 100,000 times more power and 7 million times more memory than all the computers that put people on the moon. Before we had that technology at our fingertips, it was different about how we hailed cabs and how we exchanged money and how we reserved hotel rooms and how we checked in on flights and how we went to the movies and how we bought things on Amazon. Just think of the tremendous change that's taken place. And that's really only been about a decade. If you consider the first smartphone, the iPhone, or the first major one, that was 2007. So 2007, 2017, a single device in the ecosystem built around it has dramatically reshaped our lives. What's the next device or paradigm shift that's going to occur in the next decade? And I think there'll probably be more than one. And so as an organization that's seeing this, am I supposed to guess what's coming up? Or like, how do I start getting prepared as an organization as all these things are getting changed? And how do I not get left behind here? Right. So I think one of the main themes in the book, in the subtitle of the book is let go, learn fast to thrive in the future work. And I think that let go is really important. Because if you look at the systems of education and work we've built, we ask young kids what they want to be when they grow up at a time that whatever it is, is unlikely to be there, at least in the form that they imagined it. We ask university students to pick a major before they even step foot on campus and myopically focus on their first job, which will probably be the first of 16 or 17 across five different industries. And then the first thing we ask each other is, what do you do? And all of those things set an identity trap because studies have found the loss of a job can take twice as long to recover from than the loss of a primary relationship. And a lot of times people don't fully recover. And sure, there's a financial piece of that. I don't want to dismiss that, but it's something much, much bigger than financial. It's a loss of everything you think you are and how you value yourself and how you orient yourself in the world. So we've got to begin by helping people develop resilient and adaptive identities and agile learning mindset. That's a concept I've developed, which is basically, do I have agency? Do I understand learning is my responsibility? Do I have adaptability? Do I have agility, particularly learning agility? And do I have awareness, particularly market and self-awareness? So do I know how my company creates value and how I contribute to creating that value? Because chances are good if your company is going to survive, it's going to morph through multiple business models, which means the way you create value is going to change. We're not preparing people for that. We're preparing people by codifying and transferring existing skills and knowledge into people. So lunging at whatever it is you think you might need to know is a backwards way of looking at it. It's driving really fast and looking at the rearview mirror. 
Wow. I love how you actually label that, whereas the sole idea of adaptive identity is required. And it's funny because I had another episode that I talked about how even at Mind Valley, like Mind Valley has a super strong culture. And I remember that there was a part of me that had this attachment to my identity as my part of playing this role as a host or as a contributor within Mind Valley. And as you label this with the fact that most people who come out of university get into their first job assuming that this is where they're going to form their identity. And if that is lost, there's a recovery period. Is this been a phenomenal that's just been growing more these days? Or has there always been this attachment to identity and workplace? Because it seems like that's a lot of responsibility to give to your employer. <laughs> it is. I refer to it as a bestowed identity. And that's dangerous because it can be taken away from you and how we need to move to a self-actualized, internally validated identity. I think it's been going on a long time. If you're of European descent, chances are good your last name was your vocation. A lot of our last names were built out of the industries our families worked in. And if you looked at the first and second industrial revolutions, jobs, and back then it was mostly men, they were inherited. You did what your dad did. And we got into the third industrial revolution. You probably didn't do what your dad did. Some folks did, or what your mother did by then. But you formed your identity around that expression of knowledge and skills in a moment in time because you could probably ride a career escalator up for a couple of decades, if not your entire career. Now that career escalator is gone, it is a series of waves you've got to surf. And traversing from one wave to the next becomes so much more important than your first step on the career escalator. And nobody seems to be getting that. It's interesting. What I made of the parallel is like someone who basically knew how to work on cars was a mechanic. And that was his identity was more to the label of the career that he was in. But today it's like, there's just so little permanence to a specific job to be done. Because as technology is evolving, you don't know if that skill set, like, I would be terrified to think that, oh, my God, what I'm doing is going to be automated, destroyed, won't exist, because the technology will come up and it will be completely non-existent. And that seems even more scary than losing a job, which you've found your identity with. And so what are some of the skills that people should be looking to gravitate towards? You talked about self-awareness. You talked about adaptability. Can we dig more about how is it that I can prepare so that I can be a little more resilient and not have that attachment to the label of the job or the label of the identity that I form with the organization? Well, one of the exercises I tell people to do is to look at how work's reshaping. I like to use alliteration. So Work is being atomized. That means that digital technologies are enabling jobs to be separated from work. So if you hire someone through Upwork or Fiverr or TaxRabbit, or even if you use Uber or Airbnb, you're participating in the atomized economy because it's outside of a specific job. You list the tasks you do every day and you say, okay, what could I hand off to somebody else to do in isolation, give back to me and put in my workflow? Before that, you should look at what can be automated. What is automated today and what can be automated tomorrow are really getting closer to each other. So anything routine or predictable can be automated. And then anything discrete and in isolation can be atomized. And what's left is what's the work that I would call augmented. That's the stuff you'll do with technology tools. And it's a lot of your uniquely human skills. It's your ability to learn and adapt. And what you need to do is once you've made that list and you've taken off the things that can be automated or atomized, you look and say, where can I reach up and add more skills and knowledge? Where can I deepen or upskill is what it's called. And where can I look across the landscape and say, my skills can be ported to this new domain, or if I add this piece to it, so where can I reskill? And we think about those things as something somebody does when they lose a job. That's something people need to be doing every single day. So it's not like, go learn coding and you'll be all set, or go learn data analytics. 
all those things are going to come and go and they're going to come and go with increasing frequency. It's your ability to learn, adapt, let go, which is going to be your mark of survival and thriving. I think about this example, it's kind of like the frog in the boiling water, which is like, if you dump the frog in the boiling water, it's kind of like losing a job. Then you're like, all right, I'm going to do a career change. I'm going to learn all this. But what we're seeing with this rapid change is the frog being in that hot water, not jumping out as it's slowly boiling and boiling. And so what's the wake up call that people need to have to take action on this without losing their job? Because it sounds like that's too far gone. Like if you're currently in your job and you're comfortable it's almost like you get too comfortable. You're not pushing that as world is changing. You need to also change. So what's that catalyst to get somebody to realize that, hey, the temperature is going up fast and I need to jump. Right. So I don't like the idea of leading with fear. So I always want to kind of turn down the temperature when people start with the metaphors that freak people out because nobody can learn when you're freaked out. There are three zones we live in, the comfort zone, the learning zone, and the panic zone. And a lot of times we go from comfort to panic without ever going into learning. And nothing can get done in the panic zone. And the comfort zone is important because that's where you sort of rest and reflect and make sense of things. It's kind of like when you're lifting weights, you tear muscle fibers so that new ones can grow back more strong than the prior ones. So we need to have that kind of constant practice and ask yourself at the end of every day or the end of every week, what did I do today? That seems to be what we're focused on. But what did I learn today? What insights did I think about? What new ways of doing my job? Because I'll give you an example. Netflix has been around now for 25, something like that years, maybe 30 years. 1997, they started DVDs by mail. 2007, they started streaming. 2011, they started doing original content. If you started at Netflix in 1997, there's a very slim chance your job is the same. And to navigate across those three business models required constant learning and adaptation because 97 to 2007 was a decade, but 2007 to 2011 was four years. And now 44% of their revenue comes from streaming. So these pivots are happening much more quickly, much more extreme. So if you define yourself just by what you do, you're in the ash heap of history. But if you define yourself on why you, how you do it, your connection to purpose, your understanding of your tacit knowledge, not just your explicit knowledge, and then your constant pursuit of upskilling and reskilling, you should be in pretty good shape. Wow. And I love that you speak a lot about how it's actually in the advantage of the company to actually reskill their employees as opposed to getting a completely new one, right? Because I feel like some companies are like, okay, we're changing the business model. We need to get rid of all these people that are doing those things. And we need to hire a bunch of people that are doing that thing. How do you communicate that with the team to understand that they should actually be investing in reskilling? And what does that cost saving look like or time frame of reskilling look like? There have been a lot of analysis on this. Josh Bershman's done some great stuff. It tends to be more at the higher end of the spectrum is the examples that he used. You know, if you need to pivot somebody who's making $200,000 a year or you got to search for somebody who's two, $300,000 a year, it might make more sense to train them internally than people who are earning less. But I say it like this. is I think the one thing that people are really missing is you can always make the cost argument. But if you stop on the fill and spill which is basically what it's called. There's two ways to look at it. One, there's the people you got rid of and that one-time cost you wrote down. And then there's the acquisition of those skills. But two things are happening there. One, you have to onboard all those new people and not just onboard them to the organization, but steep them in tacit knowledge. So they understand not what to do, but how to do it within that organization so that they create their connection from their purpose to the organization's purpose. They understand the ways of doing things. 
And when you let go all those people because they didn't have the right explicit skills, you're hemorrhaging tacit knowledge. And that's an area that I don't think is really explored yet. And so as we're embracing this new thing, which is not about what I do, but how I'm learning continuously growing and seeing that not only employees need to continuously grow because their role is being changed, but companies need to continuously reinvent themselves. Let's talk a bit about innovation and what companies need to be on top of. Does the organization have to learn and how do they nurture this learning to adapt on the changes? Because for Netflix to go from DVDs to streaming to going through this whole original scene, like there needed to be people that are constantly hammering and looking at what is the next big strategic move. How do I nurture that? Right. So you need a whole different type of leadership. And so my book is designed in three parts. Our book is designed in three parts. The first part, we talk about this change, how it's happening, what it looks like, what it means to you. Second part, we talk about your own individual identity and how you can get caught up in these identity traps, as well as the issues around agile learning mindset, uniquely human skills, that kind of thing. And then the third chapter is leadership because you need an entirely new type of leadership in this world. And I call it the difference between leaders to drive productivity versus leaders to inspire human potential. And the technology can drive all the productivity. You can drive all the efficiency. And if you need leaders to inspire human potential, which seems like a squishy word, but that's where learning and innovation comes from. You need two things, and I'm going to cite David Lewis and Allison Reynolds here, some, some fantastic research on the teams that learn the best in the VUCA volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environments have two things. They have cognitive diversity, and they have psychological safety. So cognitive diversity may include visual diversity. It may include cultural diversity. It may include different genders, different races, different ages, et cetera. But most importantly, it includes people who think differently than you do which is really hard for leaders because leaders pick their own team. You hire people to be on your team and you tend to hire people who think like you do. So cherish that person on the interview who rocks you back on your heels and makes you uncomfortable because they ask that question you hadn't thought of and hire them because that's what you need. You need somebody who's checking your blind spots all the time. And psychological safety is also sounds like a squishy word, but Google researched, I think it was 140, 150 teams across two years and said, what makes our most high-performing teams? Is it collective IQ? Is it people who know each other? Is it same gender and races and culture, different genders and races and culture? And they found the number one determinant factor was psychological safety. This is a concept term by Amy Edmondson at Harvard, which basically said, are you creating an environment where you are not oversharing, but you're vulnerable? You can say, I don't know. You can say, I made a mistake. You can say, I failed. You know, you make it comfortable for your team members to show up with not fully formed ideas yet, to work through finding new terrain. If you act like you know everything, you're telling everybody on your team to hide their weaknesses, and that is a huge danger. I love how this whole aspect on leadership really does drive on one of the initial points you made, which is you know having that self-awareness. And that leader really needs to have done some work to feel themselves that they are not supposed to know everything. They really don't need to be controlling everything in this environment that's constantly changing. I think control is probably the last thing they have. And so how does that leader keep nurturing those skills to be the best leader they can to steer the organization to embrace this new change in the industrial revolution number four? Well, I think there's a reason Brene Brown's going crazy with all her talks on leadership and vulnerability because she's really hit on something because it takes a confidence to be vulnerable. It's not insecurity to be vulnerable. It's actually hard to be vulnerable if you're insecure. It's given a lot of talks in the last year, but one of the ones I think was in September, October, 
I went up to a company called Exonify in Toronto, and they're an edtech startup that offers micro learning platforms for corporations to learn in the flow of work. And I always do my homework before I go up to do a talk. And I saw that the CEO was her fifth time as a CEO. She had sold one of her companies to Google and she had something like a 98 or 99% approval rating on Glassdoor from employees, which is pretty hard to get. So I said to her, how do you do it? I mean, you're in a tumultuous, fast growing startup. This isn't your first time in this seat. How is it you got that approval rating? Because you can't control that at all. And she said, I learned something early on maybe my third or fourth time as CEO, I don't remember, but I learned that if I show up as a human at work, other people will show up as a human at work and they'll bring their best selves to work. She said, so I say, listen, I have a different job than you do, but I have a mortgage and I have kids and I have family obligations and I don't always have the best day every day. I don't know everything. I admit when I make mistakes and I stand up publicly and admit when I make mistakes They're small companies, so she can get everybody together every couple of weeks. And I think it's every couple of weeks or once a month. She gets as many people who can be in their Toronto office together and says, I have a session called Ask Me Anything, where I stand up at a microphone and anonymously questions appear on the screen behind me, and I have to answer everything. And it's really important because it tells me what people are thinking, but it's also really important because I don't bullshit. I just say I don't know that was a mistake. I was a failure on our part. We're looking into that. We haven't met the goals we want. We have total transparency in the organization because I found when you give less information, more gets misconstrued. So we're completely transparent and I'm completely open. And I think it's caused more people to show up at work with their whole selves and being you know, somewhat vulnerable. I thought that was pretty incredible. It was pretty incredible. And like you said, it's not about this whole negative, the future is going to be all automated, everybody's losing a bunch of jobs. If anything, we're talking about how work is becoming a lot more human in the process. Correct me if this is a wrong analogy here, but we're going to be the winners when it comes to developing their careers or the companies that are going to thrive in this fourth industrial revolution as it's coming up and they need to adapt. We're talking about just letting go of identities. We're talking about making sure you're always learning. Is there particular traits that you look for if I'm looking for a career of a type of organization that would thrive in this fourth industrial revolution? The Glassdoor stuff is helpful to kind of get an eye in. It's not 100% transparent, but it's pretty good. I think going into an organization and asking questions, and if the company's willing to answer some hard questions, then you know that it's a more transparent environment. What I've said by profile, and I think this gives some people encouragement, is if you come from a background of privilege, from a financial and socioeconomic standpoint, I actually do, but I'm a woman, that makes it harder in some environments, and I'm openly gay, and that makes it harder in some other environments. But if you're disabled, a minority, if you have anything that's made it harder for you to get to the table at work, I think you actually have an advantage in the future work because you're used to adapting and you're used to overcoming hurdles and you're used to working harder and working angles. People who don't have degrees who've managed to succeed in knowledge work, I would certainly include them in there as well. So for folks who have privilege, who are getting used to this adjustment where I don't automatically get the job anymore by the nature of my socioeconomic status or my racial status or my gender status, or whatever it may be, are struggling and we're seeing that worldwide. So I think there's some of that going on because we're seeing rapid shifts in the racial composition, age composition, gender and leadership, a lot of those things that I think are underpinning some of the identity stuff as well. 
I just want to say, Heather, thank you so much for spending time with us and talking about these ideas around the future of work. And for everybody listening, really what we're looking at here is the future of work is all about learning. You don't want to tie yourself up and let go of the identities you have to the current work that you're doing. Because in 10 years from now, who knows what your organization or your own specialty is going to be. But luckily, we're also living in a time where we have access to tools that allow us to learn new skill sets faster than ever. And as these new technologies emerge, it's going to be shaping the landscape of what is work and what is a career. And you get to have these new opportunities to reskill yourself. You're going to see that you might be going a few different directions and that's okay. As long as you're continuously learning, you're going to find yourself being able to thrive. And if you're in a leadership position, we've talked a bit about what are those components you need to work on. And this whole idea of vulnerability is really important. And as the organization continues to go on its path, your business model today is not guaranteed business model for tomorrow. But don't panic. And I brought up that question of like, what do we do in this sea of change? And there's one step above your comfort zone, which is a learning zone. So don't jump right into the panic. Understand that that comfort zone gives you that time to digest, reflect, and look at what is happening so you can take a step forward into a learning zone. And this is really where you're going to be able to do your best in your current work, grow into the needs that the organization is going to have, and be part of those people that get to continuously grow a career in an organization that continues to innovate and thrive. Heather McGowan, thank you so much for spending time with me and the audience here for Superhumans at Work. And everybody listening, thanks for tuning in. Thanks a lot. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to our interview with Heather McGowan. We talked a lot about the future of work and how you need to adapt. So learn to let go. You want to be able to get into a space where you learn and thrive within the workplace. If you like these ideas, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, The Adaptation Advantage, and go see heathermcgowan.com for more information on all of her topics and all of the learnings that you can get when you prepare yourself for this fourth industrial revolution. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us a review and share this with friends who are looking to adapt within their career so they can embrace the change, not panic, but really be in that state of continuous learning. This is Jason Campbell, and thanks again for listening. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast.